You're listening to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson. Jason Daphnis, our producer and co-host, is here. Hey, Jason. Matt, hey, hello. Hey, hello to you. A fine hey, hello to everybody um, in our listening audience. Uh, how you doing, Jason? Oh, gee, I could find that mic button a little bit easier, but I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. I, am <laughs> I thought that stoked. was like an awkward pause. I <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just question. bad at my job. I'm really stoked <laughs> to talk about the music we've got lined up for today because it is a left turn from last week. And we're pleased to welcome to the show Peter McConnell. Uh, if you've played video games at all over the past decades, you, you know his work. Uh, Grim Fandango, Sly Cooper, Full Throttle, um, his work with Double Fine, uh, with Psychonauts and the upcoming Psychonauts 2, Brutal Legend. Just a bunch of really cool and interesting uh, game music that he's made over the years. And it's sort of a very unique voice, I think, in video game uh, soundtracks and composition. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Matt. Thanks so much for your time. Um, so before we get into your pick, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the, your, your career a little bit and your approach to um, you know soundtracks and, and scoring and, and, and all that. Um, one thing that you know, I was listening to some of your stuff this week uh which is great uh with streaming you can kind of go back and just go through these old game music soundtracks and one thing that i really notice is that you 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 can really incorporate a wide variety of different stylistic kind of traits within one one score or one one game project you know like grim fandango has like elements of jazz and more traditional movie soundtracks and klezmer and latin american music or you know then something as different as Brutal Legend, which was like, obviously, you know, kind of thrash metal was sort of part of the, the whole like DNA of that game. Um, talk a little bit about how you approach that and, and how you sort of select what sort of idioms you're going to work with in, in a soundtrack. Uh, well, I, you know, being sort of a diverse writer, you know, uh, writing, writing in a lot of styles is something, uh, and taking a lot of influences is something I, I do take a certain amount of pride in. I, I don't know whether, um, it's a testament to my, uh, short attention span or, or, or what, but, um, I've, uh, I've also lived a lot of places in my life. So I've had a lot of inf- uh, musical influences from everywhere from, uh, Switzerland to Eastern Kentucky, to Kansas, to New Jersey, um, and, um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I just love music. I mean, I, the thing I like to say is, you know, a lot of people say they love all kinds of music and, uh, they mean everything from ACDC to Led Zeppelin, uh, who are, <laughs> who are great, you know, yeah. but, but I really, I really do love pretty much all kinds of music. There's just very few, uh, genres that I can't find something to love about. Uh, so, uh, part of, to me, part of, uh, the fun uh, and sort of artistic satisfaction that one gets out of scoring games is that you really have a lot of freedom to just kind of go anywhere you want. And uh, because games, I think, assimilate a lot of cultural uh, influences as well. So uh, it's, it is something that I, I consider to be, you know, part of my DNA as it were. Um, and uh, so, and you know, how do I approach that? Well, I don't know. I, I think the, the I think the quick answer is melody. That you know, how do I bring things together uh, from from uh, you know, say klezmer music and uh, and uh, you know, uh, heavy metal or something like that. And that is, um, I keep 
I try to keep a thematic unity. I'm very sort of conscious about about themes for different characters and places in a game. And uh, when I start to score a, a project, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the art and I'm going to sort of see where that takes me sonically. And I'm going to, um, you know, work with that and come up with a, with a melody line that is, uh, that I can do a lot with. I, that's, that's about the best I can put it. Um, so, I mean, that's the, and you find, and you also find common instruments perhaps between the different styles. You know, honestly, I've never really thought about it that hard. I've just done it. So, um, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't honestly, uh, 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 I can't really necessarily break down what I do with different styles that, um, you know, carefully. It's kind of like Bob Dylan said, said about songwriting, uh, you know, I, I can't really talk about it, but when, I, when I'm doing it, I have a handle on it, you know. <laughs> I, um, somewhere I've got a better Dylan impression than that, but it's it's uh, that's not really important right now. Ah, everyone's <laughs> got a bad Dylan impression. I do. Jason does. It's right. just you got to have one. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he um, was you know he was really just doing a Lawrence Ferlinghetti impression, but that's a that's another story. <laughs> He's impersonated a lot of people over the years. Yeah, Bob has. Um, I, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about just because, you know, obviously Brutal Legend was, you know, I guess music was really central to it in, in a very, you know, different way than a lot of games. And, yes. and I know you worked with Jack Black and I know mm-hmm. you're working with him again for Psychonauts 2. Mm-hmm. Talk about that relationship and how it is to work with uh, with Jack. Well, um, a pretty long distance. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I mean, um uh, you know, Jack did the voice, uh, did the, did the, uh, voice, the main character in brutal legend mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and Tim Curry did the sort of ne- his nemesis and, uh, uh, you know, but scoring, scoring a cutscene with Jack Black and Tim Curry duking it out. It's, it, it, it's hard to get better than that. I gotta say, yeah. uh, as, as a composer. So, I mean, I guess the short answer is didn't really work directly with him on brutal legend. Um, for um it was more you know he was more the voice talent right, in that okay. situation and, and, I, and i and i was scoring the game um but uh for for psychonauts 2 uh tim wrote a song for jack to sing uh he wrote he wrote the words to a song for jack to sing and, and i wrote the music and in uh one thing i i definitely did for that was pretty much listen to everything I could find on YouTube where Jack was singing live so that, uh, I really got a sense of what, where his comfort zone is as a vocalist, which, um, really fortunately turns out to be kind of close to mine, (laughs) except, except better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, when, when we, when we recorded the song, um, uh, he was in LA and I was up here and we were, uh, we, I was actually at double fine and, and, uh, we had a video link and Tim was down with Jack and I was up with Camden Stoddard, uh, who's the audio director at double fine. Uh, and you know, so we were, we could see each other and we could hear each other. And essentially what, um, it, it was really cool because, because, uh, he would, Jack just basically listened to my scratch track. Cause I sang the song, um, as, as, you know, as a demo. And he, um, very respectfully, uh, 
I, it just, it was so cool. He, he listened to every single tiny nuance in what I was doing my voice. And he did exactly the same thing, except wow. it was Jack. Except Whoa. it was Jack. He'd be like, oh, can I hear the OG again? And they'd play me and he'd be like, okay. Um, uh, yep. Okay. Got it. And then he would do this thing that was kind of like what I imagined it should be. It was just incredible. Wow. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and just so like not, um, you know, I don't know. He just, he was just part of the song rather than like taking it over or something like that. It was, it it was just, it's kind of hard to describe. It was very, very cool. Yeah. Wow. So he, he can kind of just nail it pretty much. Uh, he is a, an amazing singer. I had no idea. I mean, you know, you see him, you, you see the movies or whatever, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, he's great, you know, but to actually work and hear it happening in real time is like, oh, that's what that's like, you know. Oh, <laughs> that's that's great. Cool. I'm curious, um, and you've done this with, Sly Cooper, uh, I guess when you're uh, specifically to Psychonauts 2, you know, it's been a number of years since the first one and you're coming back to this kind of universe. Uh, when you think about your, your score, do you, are you trying to recapture some of the first one or, or bring forth certain musical elements or themes from the first game? Or do you feel like you're starting with a, like a clean slate with this one? Yeah. So I, I, I am very big on there being, you know, it sort of goes back to the the, what I was saying about themes. Um, I'm very big on, uh, there being, a, sort of a, a sense, a, a, them- a thematic personality, you know, it's like the star Wars movies, everybody knows the force theme and everybody knows, you know, a Darth Vader's theme and so on. And, uh, uh, and I tried, and that, that's a tradition that goes back, uh, in classical music to, uh, opera um, and, uh, Wagner and, and, uh, Carl Maria von Weber and, and, uh, the, uh, the 19th century, um, opera composers, uh, wrote, uh, as a, as a way of, of telling the story musically, they, they had things called leitmotifs where these were, which were these little themes. They're very short, um, like, you know, the sword theme in the ring is something like bum, 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 something like that. Not very long, mm-hmm. but every time you see the sword there, you get it and you're like, Ooh, it's the sword, you know? And, uh, 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 I probably sang that wrong. So for all, all you Wagner fans, don't shoot me, please. But, um, the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, my, my, my so- best, my best acquainted with the Bugs Bunny version of the ring, but. <laughs> um that's another story but uh uh but that's the tradition that it comes from and um and uh uh so so when movie composers and and so games uh, games inherited their tradition from movies which inherited their condition their tradition from opera and uh so when we you know have a character we want to have some musical cue that that tells you that's who it is well so Sly Cooper is Sly Cooper in all the Sly Cooper games. And, and um, uh, Raz is Raz in all of the Psychonauts games. And so Raz needs to have a theme or themes that you associate with him. And um, Lily has a theme that you associate with her and Dr. Lobato. And, 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 in, and in the new game, there's a new character uh, who has a theme associated with her. That's very big in the score. Um, so 
yes, I, I really absolutely went back to, for Psychonauts 2, I went back to um, Psychonauts 1 and used pretty much every single theme except maybe the milkman because he's not in the new one. Um, but, you know, uh, anybody who, who appears in the new, uh, in Psychonauts 2, um, there's a musical continuation uh, of that character from Psychonauts 1. And, you know, honestly, Psychonauts 1 was, it was, it was Tim's first game out of, uh, out of LucasArts. Um, and uh, it was Double Fine's, you know, first release. And we all were working under, I would say, um, you know, less uh, fortuitous circumstances than we are now. And, and so there are a lot of things about the Psychonauts 1 score that honestly, if, if there'd just been a little more money available, I, I would have, you know, maybe done uh, a, a little bit uh, production. I mean, I hate to sound mercenary or something like this, but, but you know, as an artist, uh, you have, you work with what you have to work with. And what I had to work with there was, okay, well, I'm going to play the bongos for, for um, the, uh, for the velvet, velvetopia world and you know i'm gonna mm-hmm. uh and, and i can afford i can afford live trumpet on this but i can't afford it on that um and uh we had a whole different set of circumstances for psychonauts too so in, in a lot of ways psychonauts 2 was able to really uh develop what got started in psychonauts 1 in a way that for me it's like oh man that's the way i always wanted to hear it you know that's really cool oh that's you great know, you-, you know without like messing with you don't want to you know, Han shot first, right? I, I, you don't want to, you don't want to, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to mess with something that you don't want to mess with in, in something that's original. And so I really try to keep the, the, um, the, the flavor of, uh, and charm of Psychonauts one in Psychonauts two, but we really are working with, you know, we've got the Melbourne symphony orchestra and we've got, uh, cats in Nashville and, um, we've got some incredible local players and, uh, Paul Hansen on electric bassoon and uh, and uh, Matt Eckel on flute uh, and um, my my buddy Andy Burton who who uh, who plays for little little Stephen uh, okay yeah and Cindy Lopper and and John Mayer uh, formerly anyway uh, Andy's incredible keyboard player and and we uh, we're both students of Yvonne's we'll get to that <laughs> yeah and uh, and uh, um, and I got some amazing, um, Hammond organ tracks from him, uh, on, on Psychonauts too. So really just, I was pretty much able to call up just about everybody, um, who I thought was awesome and who I'd worked with before. And, and because the score was so long and huge and had so much to, to, to really portray that uh, I was able to, you know, include a lot of people that I, I really I, I like and admire in the score. That's great. We look forward to hearing it. Um, so you mentioned him and let's, I usually ask kind of people a little bit about their musical development, mm-hmm. but your, your pick for music this week is sort of very tied to that development. Um, it, it you've selected um, Ivan Trepnin. He yeah, is a, uh, Ivan or Yvonne. Yes. Yvonne Trepnin. Uh, he is a, I guess, a modern classical avant-garde composer. Would that be a, a fair statement? I yes, think um, was was he he oh, um, was. he was born in he was born in forty three uh, okay. and uh, very much uh, of the rock and roll generation, um, and uh, 
you know, John Lennon was born in 1940. Uh, and, uh, so was Bob Dylan. Uh, and, uh, and so Yvonne was born in 43 and, uh, he studied under, um, uh, well, his father and grandfather were both eminent Russian composers, Alexander and, uh, Nikolai Trevnin. Uh, you can find their work in, you know, works for piano. Like my, my son, it's actually one of his favorite pieces when he was learning, uh, piano was like a piece by Alexander. Um, and, uh. And so he comes from a distinguished, uh, came from a distinguished, uh, uh, musical family. His mother was Chinese and he was raised a, a, a lot. Um, he was raised, I believe mostly in Paris because he had a French accent and he studied under Karl Heinz Stockhausen, who's a famous, uh, uh, German, um, avant-garde electronic music composer and also under Pierre Boulez, uh, and some other people. And, uh, he went to graduate school at Mills and taught at Harvard, which is where he taught me and, uh, Michael Land, who's, uh, um, people who, who, who know me and my work and, uh, know that Michael, uh, was, uh, the guy at LucasArts that, who, who, uh, brought a team together, including myself and Clint Pajakian to, uh, score, uh, a bunch of those games in the nineties that we all remember like monkey Island two and, and, uh, grim fandango and so on. And, uh, so, uh, <clears throat> Yvonne has all these, you know, little kids running out in the world, <laughs> you might say. And, uh, and, uh, he was very unusual person. He, uh, it, he looked different and he had a French accent. And anybody who studied with him had their their own uh, their own imitation of Yvonne's accent, um, but he was sort of just a unique. You know, they made him and they broke the mold. Yeah, and uh, and he had a lot of you know these influences that I've already mentioned that are very sort of highbrow. But he was also a great fan of pop music, and I think it's just fascinating. I mean, because we didn't know right which records each of us was going to choose. Yes, I still call them records. Um, uh, and, uh, and it's really fascinating to me that <laughs> you chose, um, acts, acts as bold of love, uh, bold as love, uh, by, uh, Jimmy, uh, because, uh, that was made in 1967 and shortly after, um, shortly after he made that, uh, record, he came out here to California and did his U S uh, debut performance at Monterey pop where um he set his guitar on fire yeah that's the like I can't, i'm sure you've seen the a poster or that iconic yes. image of him sort yes. of conjuring up yeah. from this flaming guitar yes yvonne was at that show wow okay he's yeah. at monterey pop yes he was at monterey pop so, i mean that's that's sort of like i mean <laughs> i think woodstock is a bigger name but really i no, think Mon this, monterey pop was more important you're right yeah i think that's yeah. sort of the iconic yeah concert that sort of because it, it's Woodstock's getting towards the end of the '60s, where yeah. Monterey Pop feels like the beginning of sort of a a new era. Yes, in it's certain... still it's still it's still positive and blooming at Monterey Pop, and um, and you know that gives you an idea of Yvonne's uh, eclectic taste, um, because he was because he was there at that show, and I mean I still remember like, you know have you ever listened to Jimi Hendrix? Yeah, I saw him play at Monterey wow. in 1967. He lit his guitar on fire. <laughs> <laughs> really quite something. And, and, uh, but the thing is that that whole sort of 
1967 was also the year that uh, uh, The Who smashed their guitars on the Smothers Brothers show. And um, I was seven years old and I loved every, every, uh, I was in Eastern Kentucky. We, we lived in Appalachia and in Pikeville, Kentucky, in my, where my dad was a professor at a, at a local college. And, um, we had just come there from Switzerland. So that was some culture wow. shock. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, so, but you know, every Sunday night we'd turn on that, we'd turn on that, uh, Smothers Brothers comedy hour and, and I, and I saw the, the who smashing their guitars on black and white TV and in, in uh, Pikeville, Kentucky. And I was just like, what in the world is that? That is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, um, so, you know, th- and, and that seemed like such a, um, sort of a revolution at the time. Uh, but, you know, honestly in 1951, you had, um, this, uh, German artist, uh, his name is something like boys or boys or something like that. Um, who smashed a piano and then Nam Jung Pike, who was a, um, avant-garde video artist, sort of the, the, the father of, of, of performance art and video art also smashed a piano in 1963 as, as, a, as this huge, um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, performance and, and Yvonne <laughs> described yeah. that as a, <laughs> as a very dangerous piece. Yeah. I've always found too, <laughs> that like, no matter how crazy I get into like underground rock music or whatever, like, the craziest music ever made is was inevitably all by these like very professorly looking like guys that were on staff at some college in like 1945 or something. You know, it's just like it, it was amazing um, what what's how extreme or just how oh, yes. different what they were doing. And I just want to, for people that aren't super familiar with modern classical, I don't know a ton. Anything I do know, I just want to plug a book called The Rest is Noise. Um, it's by a, a music writer named Alex Ross, and it's sort of a, a history right. of uh, 20th century classical music, basically starting with like Mahler and, and Wagner, who you mentioned, and right. then going on through you know all the way up to the 80s and like Philip Glass and people yes. like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and- also, also for people, I just want to like note right. that when you mentioned Stockhausen and, and Pierre Boulet, like that's sort of the equivalent of saying like if we were in an earlier era that he studied under like Bach. Yes. And Beethoven. Is, like is. that's that's how big those I just want to stress like how big yeah. those figures are, yeah. right? And, and, are, correct are. me if I'm wrong, but Yeah, no, you're no, you're right. I mean, and uh uh yeah, that was he those were definitely the luminaries uh of that era. And um and so he had this very he had this very, very traditional um well Stockhausen was was a little more avant garde because I mean um and and it, you know a little just a little bit of a, a roundabout here. Yvonne's relation described to me his relations with, with Stockhausen is, you know, I I learned a lot from him, but I also in some ways uh, he had this approach that that really wasn't so great for Yvonne, which was you know he'd go he would go into the electronic music studio in in wherever it was that, that Stockhausen taught, and I, I should know that. Sorry. Um, uh, and, uh, there would be like dudes in lab, lab coats holding patch codes, you know, like, would you like to me to, you know, put this to this hair trapping kind of thing. And, um, and, uh, in, and Yvonne found that very sterile and hard. I mean, Stockhausen also measured his tape by the millimeter to make those pieces. It was, uh, it's all, uh, you know, it's when they made pieces on tape and one of which we'll, we'll be listening to, uh, one of Yvonne's tape pieces. But, um, so Yvonne's approach was very different. 
uh, he, uh, he, uh, had his studio was not in, wasn't, he could have had it in the basement where it would have been perfectly anechoic and, and super, um, uh, super, you know, sound isolated or whatever. And, uh, instead he chose to have it upstairs behind the concert hall, which was, <laughs> and, but, but the vibe was so much better. And plus you could see outside, um, you could see over to the law school and the lawns of the physics department and stuff. And it was just a better place to make music. So it was noisier and, <clears throat> and it, it interfered with the concerts that would go on in the concert hall. <laughs> but, but you know that just it, for for Yvonne the the vi- the vibe in your creative uh uh world was so much more important than um uh you, that was where the music came from so you know things like audio quality were kind of a detail okay um and uh i i've honestly uh, i think a lot of us who study with him have kind of carried that on i know michael has to some degree not that we don't care about um audio quality but that we're very attuned to the environment that we make our music in. Right. Let, let we, let's hear a little bit. I don't yeah. know where it would be a good place to start. We could start at the beginning. Uh, so also there's, as far as I can tell, there's pretty much one of his albums available on, on streaming services. It's uh, the music of Ivan Trepnin, right? which is three pieces, Flores Musicales, five songs and Santur live. Yes. Um, like sort of a collection of his works. Um, uh, I mean, we, we could start at the beginning. I don't know where just to give people, we should give people a little taste of, of what it's like. Sure. Yeah. It's a, as Laurie Anderson said, Lander, Laurie Anderson said, prepare yourself for a little difficult listening. So yeah, tell us a little bit about what's kind of going on here. A, a lot of a, a lot of this, the processing in this piece. So this is recorded to tape, um, and it's um, violins and and uh, and uh, oboe and um, processing and signal processing. That signal processing is is tape. Uh, sounds to me like uh, tape delay, and also. Um, um, I, boy, I'm spacing on the name of the country company, but um, it, it was called a harmonizer. Oh, the Eventide. Thank you, the Eventide. Yeah, yeah, we had one in the studio, and and you could do things with it, like change the. Um, he may also be using. Um, it's possible he's using. Uh, it sounds like the Eventide to me, though. The other thing that he might use in a situation like that would have been um, the Lexicon Prime Time, uh, which had a, a way you could you could make have long delays and then change the delay time on the fly so that things would drop an octave like that (laughs) 
So, there, yeah, he's really exploring. He's exploring a very simple thing, right? Which is this, which is this um, sort of uh, gesture, this little scale that goes up, kind of like a flower opening up. Um, you know, maybe hence the name Floris Musicalis. And he's exploring how to deal with that in time. And I think what you'll hear, and you can hear, also you hear, you hear the bare, the bare bones of, of uh, 19, uh, set late 1970s recording um, audio quality, but this would have been done on a, probably a Scully two-track tape machine, um, and uh, which we had in the studio when I was so I, I, when I got to the studio at, at, at Harvard, um, uh, having switched over from physics, um, it was a really interesting time uh, in music because um, because some of this we were just going to from the a transition from analog to digital technology is just beginning, and so we all learned how to work with tape first. And this, uh, the piece, most of what you're hearing is analog technology. And a lot of it, a lot of the same techniques you're going to hear on the Jimi Hendrix record. Um, uh, I'd say, I don't know what else to say about that. Oh, the other thing is, you know, I think when you listen to a piece like this, um, it seems like the same thing over and over again for a long time, maybe. And, um, so it's one of those pieces where you want to listen to it again a little more carefully and observe how things change uh, subtly as the piece progresses. And one, one thing Yvonne had a really great sense of was time. I took a, I took a piece to him once that I needed help on. And he said, uh, and he would, he was very, he wasn't very specific ever about his teaching techniques. He would always say, well, you know, um, he would always sort of give guidance or show an example. And in this case, he said, it needs more space. Have you ever heard Al Green? And then he sits <laughs> down and plays me, um, not take me to the river, um, a cooler one. Ah, geez, now I can't think of what it was. Anyway, nice, long, uh, and it goes, this Al Green song that just goes on and grooves on and on and unfolds in this way that's just so satisfying. And, you know, everything that it explores, it explores to the fullest extent um, so that you just, when you hear it, you're like, okay. And then when something new happens, you're like, yeah, I want to be here now. And, um, it's this sense of how much weight to give a section of a piece of music. And, um, and that's what to listen for in, in a piece like this. What's another piece you or a section of a piece you'd like to listen to and, you know, maybe just kind of set it up for us? Um, I would say Domi. Um, you, you have whatever part of Domi you, you, you would like to. So Domi I, is, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I had it 445, Jason. It kind of yeah. opens from this drone kind yes. of and it into a little bit more of an expansive yes, kind of yeah. melody. I thought that was a nice moment. Yeah. Another thing that's worth mentioning, um, uh, about sort of the pacing of, of pieces like Domine and, and, and the piece that you just heard um, would be that uh, in classical music, um, uh, minimalism was really coming to the fore. So Terry Riley and Steve Reich, I saw a live performance of To Heal Him during this time. And um, so, and that sort of came from a, partly from an interest <clears throat> sparked by the Beatles. Um uh, you know, in Eastern culture, Eastern religion, Eastern music, 
uh, which, which has a longer time constant, if you will. And, uh, so, uh, that's definitely an influence on a piece like do, do me. And, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that point about, uh, Eastern influences, but, but yeah, this, so, so do me is, is very simply, it starts as two notes sung by a, um, you know, a beautiful sort of alto singer. And it gradually brings in flute and I believe trumpet. I used to listen to this. It's 10 minutes long. Obviously, we're not going to listen to the whole thing. But um, I used to listen to this probably for a year straight every night as I went to bed. Yvonne gave me a, a, a cassette recording of it. And I also have uh, his uh, an original half-speed master of his, uh, of this particular piece. But it what it does, it's, it's really the sort of comp- most essential example of this how much time you can give to, to something and really um, explore and feel the notes as they come out and evolve. And there's this sort of evolution that happens in the piece that's just really cool. Anyway, I think we should play the beginning for just a little bit, just so we can get a sense of, of, of what the setup is. Because what it's going to do is very, very gradually, the delays are going to come in more and more often. Um, kind of like in the in, in a for those of you classical buffs out there, kind of like in the way in a Bach fugue, uh, you get the subject and it gets uh, riffed on in different ways and explored in sequences. And near the end of the fugue, um, you get something called a stretto, where the where the where the um, f- subjects are played very quickly on top of each other and compressed in time. So you can hear these layers are gradually adding to each other and adding to each other. Um, so it's and it's important to note that this is before the invention of digital delay. This particular piece, um, and uh, uh, at least at, at the very least, before the invention of a digital digital delay that could do this length of a recording. Mm. And so um, uh, the way it was done, we learned. Uh, to do uh, delays by, um, for all you geeks out there, uh, you can accomplish a, a, d- a delay on a tape machine if the record head and play head are in different places, which they are on the old high quality um, uh, tape machines. So what you do is you run the tape out of the play head and then loop it back through the record head. Hmm. So you have uh, your mic, your miking, um, or taking the signal somehow from the from the from the playhead, and you're mixing it in with the signal that goes into the record head. Hmm. And um, to get to get um, 
to get a longer delay loop, you have to actually pull the tape out from the machine so that um, and, and, and wrap it around something like a mic stand or something. So you'll see the <laughs> tapes going around. It's coming from the from the from the uh, back reel to the pickup reel. It's going over the record head and then it's it's being pulled out, going around a mic stand, coming back in to the playhead so that that um, uh, you've got this long amount of time between record and play because mm-hmm. what's coming out of the playhead is going immediately back into the is being mixed and the signal goes into the record head. And and if I can just clarify, so yeah. the longer that the further away that thing is, that mic stand yes. or whatever, the more of a delay you're gonna have? That's correct. And that's so, that's insane. So so when when people were working with tape delay, uh, and um, and there 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 are things on the on the Hendrix album that sound to me exactly like this technique, and, and they may or may not be accomplished that way. But um, when people are doing serious tape delay pieces, you'll see like all the all these all these mic stands. You'll see all these mic stands going like all over the room, and so so, so you know if someone's working a serious tape piece you might have mic stands or whatever objects all over the room and the tapes mm-hmm. running all over the place to get this and the thing is of course each time because it's essentially a loop you you can you make you can make it as a as, as a loop of tape that goes back around and, mm-hmm. and keeps recycling and each time you record it it naturally degrades and that's how you get and if you filter what's going into the into the record head uh, say with a high pass filter then what you'll get is this effect of the of the delay gradually, gradually fading into the distance, and that's wow. what you're and that's what you're hearing here, and that's where all these you know all these uh, effects that we do you know that we just press a button or, or now you know move a mouse to to get now they all came from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, we had just hit uh, about four forty um, in Domi, and your timestamp was four forty five. So I'll let you this one up yeah um, i just thought this you know we've you've kind of been hearing in the background the sort of repetitive kind of thing going on here it kind of opens up a bit into like the yes. different melodies introduced and it's sort right. of i thought a striking part of it sure here we go Peter, if I can be a little bit of a choir nerd for a second. Um, yes. So solfege, as I remember, in minor would actually be do may, right? Because it's a minor <laughs> third. Am I wrong yeah, about that? I, I think you're actually right about that, and I have no explanation for that. I think, I think, <laughs> I think, I think do me just sounds better. Uh, it really does. It, it really does. My, it's going to be my guess there. Yeah, and and uh, I think part of the process is that he does hit all of them. Ray, I'm not sure of, but I'm sh- yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure he hits them all. It's, hmm. Um, uh, and uh, that's part of the completion of the piece. Oh, and like this, he hits every scale degree every in this piece. Scale degree, yeah. Whoa. So Fasila, that just he just hit a bunch of them. <laughs> Fasila. 
It's interesting when when he chooses to like that, like bring in yes, lead voices yeah. where everything's kind of been a texture. It's there's right. suddenly a, a lead poking out. Exactly, and then and then the same tech, the same tape technique happens where it's cycled back into the into the sort of organic um, yeah. uh, tape uh, abyss, you might say. Yeah, wow. yeah. that was and beautiful. That moment right there that is a um um that ray, that high ray, ray um is is uh. That's sort of when it finally pops through the top of the scale, and so there's this big kind of, um, yeah. there's this big kind of, uh, what do you want to say, um, epiphany, you might say, at that moment. Huh. And then, and then it just kind of, it kind of calms down, and 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 and. Uh, oh wait, that's then. Then there's a coda at the end. That's right. It gets really weird at the end. Yeah, we're at about seven and a half yeah. minutes of a so, ten-minute yeah, piece. So you have, so you have, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have two and a half more minutes of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, then then it, there's kind of a deconstruction at the end where there's sort of chaos. I want to get into some other stuff here because there's yep. some definitely uh, like this. There's a wide uh, array of let's say different different things going on. Uh, yeah, one I'm that afraid, I, I just want to touch, touch on yeah. the more. Like I say, explicitly maybe avant-garde, experimental, mm-hmm. leaning even more. I'm assuming into sort of like you know, signal manipulation and tape and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, let's let's check out the song cues at about one thirty. Um, and this one is almost kind of challenging your maybe ideas of what music is, right? Uh, in certain respects, and and right. so let, let's hear a little bit just to give people a flavor because it's, it's it's not like a lot of things you've probably heard before. So, yeah, you get, I mean, I think people get the idea. It's, you know, you're not having a stroke. Um. Right. (laughs) You know, the, and the beginning of our next record comes to mind too there. Uh, you know, that, that, um, yes, it does. Yeah. Actually that's, I, I, I thought of that. And, and and for folks who, and for folks who know Stockhausen, (laughs) all three of you out there, um, I've known he's, you know, he's actually (laughs) huge figure. Um, but, uh, that's very, uh, reminiscent of, of some of his, um, of some of his work that I've heard anyway. Um, and, uh, it's sort of the idea of, you know, maybe breaking down speech into and exploring, um, the intersection of the actual language and just the sound, you know, when does it become something that makes sense syntactically as language and 
when is it a sound? Um, and uh, plus you're hearing a bunch, again, a bunch of uh, a tape delay techniques there to uh, slowing it down, speeding it up, um, making, you know, little slapback echoes uh, through the tape head. And, um, uh, and that's, you know, totally reminiscent of not only Stockhausen, but, but, you know, stuff on the, on uh, the Beatles uh, albums, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, they're, they're all, they're, they're amazingly, uh, they're much more connected than they seemed like they were at the time. And they, and, uh, and, you know, now people maybe don't know so much about that era and, and, and don't realize how much they were connected. But um, I mean, uh, Yvonne wanted to have John Lennon come as, as a Norton lecturer to Harvard. Um, he was hmm. voted, he was voted down, unfortunately. Really? Um, but yeah, uh, I actually read that um, despite kind of his reputation as being the more pop one, that McCartney was actually much more hip to a lot of that avant-garde stuff that was going I, on. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, I think um, John got it more from Yoko um, yes. because she was, you know, Yoko was, kind of i mean on the performance art side really part of some of this almost the same movement that maybe trepnin was in a certain way like she she dated back to the 50s absolutely um, yeah you could in fact you could go to 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 there's a there's a place in that in the same building um uh where the studio was called the seeger room which was pete seeger's dad who was a was a um musicologist ethnomusicologist and and i found in that room uh a a little a performance piece by Yoko Ono, which was just a stack of business cards that had sayings on them and you read them one at a time. Hmm. And it was actually quite a cool piece. I can't, can't for the life of me remember anything that was, I mean, it's been a few years, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that the avant-garde scene, um, I think John Lennon's uh, uh, connection to the avant-garde was, was more, sort of the performance aspect of it as opposed to the technology uh mm -hmm. you know music manipulation aspect of it and, and mccartney definitely i've seen him do things with you know here's how we you know here's how we made uh sergeant pepper on two four tracks you know and he'd have mm -hmm. the same four track right. and he'd do he'd, he'd show you tape delay actually in that there's a, there you can see him do tape delay on the uh one of these things anyway yeah What's another piece? I just want to make sure we get to a couple of yeah, things that you wanted to hear or you yeah, feel are, you know, are significant. I'd say just one more. Uh, I, I, the, the one I want to really make sure that we hit is um, the Grand Fire movement of Flores Musicales because it's quite beautiful and uh, just yeah. worth it. Worth yeah, worth. I had that down as yeah. well. This little bit here, um, for me, uh, calls to mind the John Lennon song, Beautiful Boy, if you know that. Oh, yeah. yeah this is the, kind somewhere. of the most like traditional, almost-sounding yes, music that I, I, I remember on this, this, this album. Yeah. And it has, this, it has this real turning point coming up. 
also what you can hear a lot of filtering and that filtering is almost certainly done by a serge a modular music system which is an analog synthesizer that was ivan's brother serge sharepnin who had a uh, who had a studio in um, san francisco which i believe i visited once Ooh. music concrete yes um, absolutely guys shut up I know it's stressful, but Matt, literally, the the listeners vote to leave your uh, Oscar <laughs> vocalizations in more often than they say leave it out. Ugh, all right, so you know, pastoral this music, and then just he, you know he's right. probably he, he's probably like, man, where's all the top end? This analog tape <laughs> exactly, <awful."> exactly. Um, <laughs> or or yeah. maybe he's like, wow, tape is that's wow, that's great. It's got that warmth, natural warmth. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> This is beautiful. I mean, this is a really a beautiful piece, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, when, it's very meditative. When the, and when the violins move in parallel, there, that's like, yeah, man. that yeah, that parallel moment is, is is really cool. And also, then what happens is he kind of messes with it and he starts throwing some dissonant notes in, and you're like, what? Whoa, not mm-hmm. everything's okay in the state of Denmark here. It's, but it's, yeah, it's just a really nice piece. You know, Matt, maybe we should have chosen this as the last piece we covered, because I would love to just say... Drift off to Thanks, sleep. everybody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we should... Uh, I was going to say, I, I did want to hear the situation in the land of Santurli, which that'll yes, kind of yes, blast yes, us yeah. out into Hendrix. Right on. Because this, this covers such an incredible range. This uh, this compilation is just... It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, I just really like this. It's just so alien yeah, sounding. Well, it's it's a lot of that sounds to my ear like an an envelope follower, and um, and the Serge had um, we had two um, we had two synthesizers in uh, the music lab. One was uh, Serge Modular, and other was a was a Bukla, which was a oh, yeah. Don Bukla, who's uh, passed away uh, a few years ago. He was a a, a guy, uh, sort of a electronic music pioneer out here in, in the, the Bay Area who I knew and um, anyway the Serge had the, the Bukla had these amazing sort of um, uh, oscillators and the Serge had a larger variety of oscillators but what it really excelled at that was um, processing um, so they had these envelope followers that could um, turn music into a sort of percussive sounding thing or or um, or just an alien sounding thing and that sounds like a little bit of the Eventide Harmonizer that classic Harmonizer there but there's so many um, you know if you've ever seen um, The Forbidden Planet I have not. Ah, uh, there's a must-watch. It's a, a 1950s um, uh, sci-fi that the score to which was so um, 
controversial that they didn't call it music in the movie. They called it sound. Wow. Skating or something like that. Cause like composers were offended or some, some such thing. Wow. Uh, check it out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, this I, I, like I said, I mean, you know, this is, you, you're right. It's, it's difficult listening. It's challenging, but I, yeah. I, I, I found it rewarding. This, to, me, it, yeah, it, to, to me, this is just, you know, I could, yeah, no. what, what it draws your attention to it's it's a it's more of a sensual experience it's a little bit like rock and roll you're listening to the texture of the music as much as you are the pitch yes yeah and, no uh, i i really yeah. uh and i like some i mean terry riley of all the people like i'm a big yes. fan of his yep like rainbow and curved air is a mm-hmm. big i love that album um i would encourage people to check that out um but yeah no and and like you said i think uh i wasn't <laughs> If we switch gears to Hendrix now, I wasn't going to play the first song, but now I'm thinking maybe we should because there is kind of a. There is, yeah, there is a little bit of. I, I, um, I will. I just want to say just sort of one last thing about Yvonne since before we move on to Jimmy, um, uh, because they both died too young. Um, uh, Yvonne, uh, uh, well, he taught he taught um, when I was there back in the '80s, and he taught into the '90s, but he passed away from liver cancer um, in at age 54. Oh no! And I think in '97, um, before he, but before uh, he left us, he um, he did um, he he kept in touch with the students pretty well, and he he came out to the Bay Area to visit. I think to visit his brother, maybe, but to also uh, he stayed with uh, Michael Land, and and we had a good time, um, uh, you know, kind of reconnecting, and uh, so I think th- there was a real special connection between his. Um, uh, him as a teacher and his students uh, that, uh, you know, those of us who took from him, who, who learned from him were felt quite privileged to experience. Yeah. I mean, he sounds like a, just a fa- I mean, fascinating figure. And I, I hadn't been yeah. familiar with him. Just, you know, when you go into his background and just what he did is it's, it's really, uh, he lived a, a, a pretty exceptional life. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let, we'll, we'll, uh, I mean, We'll switch gear to another person that yes. you know died too young and lived a very exceptional life. Um, right. Hendrix is. I think I go through this phase with almost like I've gone through this phase with like almost every classic rock kind of big warhorse. You know, yeah. Where I kind of loved him when I initially heard him like on classic rock radio as a kid, and then and then I kind of I don't know just got out of him a little bit, and then I, I recently picked up Axis, Bold as Love, uh, mm-hmm. the second Jimi Hendrix Experience album on vinyl. I don't know, maybe like a year ago. And I just all of a sudden, uh, I got really back into him again. And this yeah. one in particular is kind of, I think like if there is a, he only, he didn't do that much. Uh, he only did three studio albums and then, you know, like the band of gypsies thing. But, um, right. you know, this is kind of the deep cut of it. You know, it doesn't have maybe like any of the big radio hits and stuff like that. But, um, I kind of always have liked Axis's. It's a little gentler of a Hendrix album and kind of, mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know. It's it's an odd album, and I I really have gotten very into this album in general uh, over the past year. Um, yeah. And I'm you know I'm sure you you probably have experience with Hendrix. Like you know he's kind of a he's hard to ignore in the history of rock. Well, yeah. I mean, actually, I wrote a paper on him in college. Um, uh, I I my first introduction to him was was um, uh, Are you experienced? And that's just such a revolutionary album sonically. Um, and uh, it's funny because I wrote this thing about the, this him 
making the feedback and his solo match a match a note that he was going for. And what I didn't realize uh, until later was that he had recorded the solo backwards. Oh um, yeah, but uh, uh, he, he was he was very much kind of like a deity for, for I think a lot of us. And, uh, uh, and, you know, I wasn't even, even in college, I wasn't that big of a rocker. I was more of kind of a folk guy and a, I don't know what I was, but you know, I was into a lot of different kinds of music and, uh, but, um, Hendrix was just, he op, he operated on kind of a different plane. And, uh, I think part of it was if, if you've seen his recording at, at Woodstock and how, connected he is with the instrument that sort of transcends the the music almost uh and uh uh anyway he's just uh you know he's amazing and there is one big one on that record by the way it's little wing right oh yeah yeah definitely because everybody and his brothers played and 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 what's funny well we'll get to that i'm sure but but uh it, it uh uh yeah shoot go away yeah i i think maybe let's let's kick it off with Spanish Castle Magic. Uh, I, th- I just think, like, to me, like, this is really, I think, one of, I like this a lot better than even some of the really iconic rockers, um, like, you know, Foxy Lady or whatever. Oh, I, yeah. I, this I just has such yeah. a, like, one thing about this album and his music, it's like, it, it just is so live. It's like, even though he does a lot of studio stuff, it just has this, like, almost chaotic kind of, like, feel to it. Mm-hmm. The way, and, 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 you know, Mitch Mitchell, uh, the drummer, Noel Redding, the bass yep. player, just an excellent excellent band um so yes. that's here this is to me is just what when I, when I think of hendrix and like just that kind of chaotic almost like uh i don't know what just uh just a total vibe pure yeah just pure um i don't know pure bliss or something it's completely unfettered and it's really mm-hmm. something yeah all right here goes You know what it makes me think of, Matt, is like like jam band music, but with way more structure and like I don't know, like repeated parts rather than just going. You know, and a, yeah, and a much know, deeper pocket. Exactly, like they're yeah. all completely on the same page. I don't know. Yeah. I, I want to compare it to um, jam band music in tone, anyway. Like Matt was saying, very yeah. live, very open. It's also like jazz. I mean, in, in the sense of the, of, mm-hmm. of players being together, uh, which is why Miles Davis probably was a big. Um, Miles Davis was going to do a project with Jimmy. It yeah, didn't happen. It didn't happen. I mean, I think Hendrix was really influential in his move towards like Bitches Brew, and then yep. later, mm-hmm. like you know, yes, it was. that crazy like you know Dark Magus and yeah. In fact, uh, Miles Davis told, um, uh, uh, who was it? Oh geez, now I can't think. She's oh, my but my buddy took lessons from him, guitar player, played with Miles. Anyway, he kept telling him, um, you know, play like Jimmy, play more like Jimmy. You know, it's it's uh, huh. um, dang it. Yeah, his lead, his lead playing is just it's like like Mercury or something. It's just oh, it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't feel like he's considered. It's just like he's totally in. It's like it's just he's yeah, free. He's just playing nature. free. Absolutely.
I listened to this with my 13 year old son, by the way. Um, um, and it, I was derelict in my duty as a father for, for not introducing him to it sooner. Um, I've got a, I've got the, like? vi- the vinyl here. Oh, he loved it. Yeah. Great. This is great. It's especially this tune. This is the first one that really perked him up. Um, and uh, so I've got this old uh, vinyl. It says $5 on it, so you can see how old that is. Yeah. Huh. Um, wow. And, yeah. Uh, you, can get, <laughs> you can get it for that now. Isn't it great to open up an album and see the lyrics and, like, see the credits and, like, see the psychedelic pictures of the dudes, you know? It's just... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Matt. Matt got me into buying on Discogs for that exact same reason. Yeah, yeah it's, well, it's an unhealthy habit, but <laughs> well, you know, you got to waste your money on something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's. I wanted to play "Wait Until Tomorrow" because, um, you yeah. know, he's definitely known for kind of the real explosive stuff. But um, I think this song, like which we're gonna hear, he's such a unique and kind of fluid rhythm guitar player, um, and he just has a, a, a unique approach to it where it's almost like Noel Redding is kind of holding down the chord changes and he's kind of sketching sort of just around the chord changes. So I, I, he just has a different approach. I don't think that a lot of people have ever been able to emulate. Well, I'm standing here freezing inside your golden garden. But yeah, it's like he doesn't always play the same rhythm licks like the same way, like even Mm -mm. from Mm -hmm. repetition to repetition. There's always these slight little variations and you can tell it's almost like he's just so in the groove. It's unconscious almost. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing a lot of Motown in this, actually. Yeah. And I believe Hendrix kind of had a background playing in kind of R&B bands as a a backing musician. He played for Little Richard. And he, and he was fired for playing the guitar with his teeth. <laughs> Can't upstage little Richard. That's no, why. no, not a good idea. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I think that's a difference between him and, say, like, I mean, the only people really that were sort of doing, like, what would become kind of heavy rock at this point it was maybe Cream. Yep. Um, but, you know, they just feel very leaden to me in certain ways compared to Hendrix and the experience. Well, Funny um, you should mention Cream because because Eric Clapton saw Jimi Hendrix in New York and then stopped playing for a month or something like that because he said he could never do what he yeah. just seen. It was <laughs> yeah, I mean I've heard the same story like when he yeah. went to London and like Pete Townsend was just like what you know and just <laughs> everyone is just like oh my god who is this like alien yeah. life form yeah. You know, speaking of the alien life forms, um, I, I was I was uh, I was in the library there in the music department. I picked up the the uh, Groves um, condensed dictionary of music and looked up Jimi Hendrix and and you know this is like sort of the the uh, whatever the fuddy duddy classical uh, very very uh, thorough assessment of, of that world. Um, you know, it's it's a legend. Groves is, but it's like, I mean, you look, you could look up Jimi Hendrix and find out. You know, well, he died of a drug overdose, choking on his own vomit. Right? That's basically what they said. That's like, wow. what? And it's like, so, so you did. So, 
in, under the Beethoven uh, under the Beethoven uh, biography, it doesn't say you know a, a Ger- German composer who wasn't the most famous composer while he was alive, and 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 when he was and when he died, the coroner couldn't recognize some of the organs in his body because he was had had so much self abuse in his lifestyle. Somehow that wasn't Beethoven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Um, That's, uh, Anyway, uh, what's what's one that uh, you wanted to hear? Something that stuck out to you? I mean, I think it's just a great record. Well, um, let's see, uh, Little Wing for sure, um, and there's there's a lot to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's just wow. I yeah. mean, the, the the thing that for me as a musician about that song, um, that uh, kind of amazed me because 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 it's like you know I'm, obviously I've heard this a few times, but but on on listening to it, uh, you know, this time around, I was like, whoa, that's short. I didn't remember it's being that short. And and the thing is that this kind of relates a little bit to to sort of the the Avon thing about time. Um, the song itself is way longer than the audio that's on the track, um, because there's something about that fade back, fade out that I'll tell you if, if you've played this song, which which you know I think most self-respecting rock and roll musicians have, um, <laughs> you usually play about thirty choruses, <laughs> like you go on and on, yeah. because it's such a satisfying chord progression. And, um, and, uh, it, uh, it, it just, it's one of those, it, it's like, um, some people are, are, you know, you think they're tall, but they're, but they're actually just medium height, but they have a big personality. This, this song is kind of like that. It, 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 yeah, it, yeah. it, it just, hmm. it just, it, it just sits. So, um, yeah, it's one of the shortest song songs on the record, but I think in a lot of ways it's, it's the biggest. And, uh, I think that's the thing that really struck me. And the other, the other thing that there's a couple of other things just about, about the 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 soloing on it i mean this song has got to have influenced everybody from leonard skinnerd you know freebird to uh to uh red hot chili peppers under the bridge I yeah mean, it, it's almost it's, a proto like power ballad kind of it, 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 and 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 even down to the even down to the specific moves on the guitar you know like how you handle doing uh uh, you know the one down to the flat seven thing. Um, it's uh, uh, it's really sort. It's so iconic that way, and and just sort of as a guitar. I mean, I'm I'm not personally a great guitarist. I I, I do. Um, well, I play all the gu- all the guitar and psychonauts. Um, and uh, and I've got a strat uh, with a whammy bar, uh, and I I employ that uh, in a way that you know makes me happy. Uh, uh, but when you listen to uh, what Jimmy does with a whammy bar, um, it's just you kind of have to you have to watch it. Like I I I, I um, looked up um, a performance at Royal Albert Hall of this song. It's a, there's very few um, you know con- 
there's very little in the way of good um, concert footage of Jimmy playing. And this is no exception. It's not very good. But you can see this thing that he's doing with the whammy that makes it, it he does these things where he pushes the neck and the whammy drops down and and he's that sound that's so um you know sort of cosmic um i i've uh you know there's a zillion strats out there and every one of them has a whammy bar or most of them do but, but only one of them got played this way <laughs> it's really something yeah yeah no For i mean sure. he's very yeah he just like I said, I mean, and I think it was a fairly stock Strat. I don't think it was like he he used some like pedals, like the Fuzz Face, which you know, actually, I wanted to kind of maybe play Bold as Love because one thing we should yes. also talk about is the fact that he's he's also is like sort of a just a very free and, and just sort of like instinctive musician. He's also mm-hmm. was really doing a lot using like the studio uh, as a as an instrument using like sort of emerging technology like uh, guitar pedals which were sort of in their very 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 infancy at that point um oh yeah he was which a total, i think sort of an underrated part of him is yeah i mean he was a total uh, pioneer you know he, just he rivaled the beatles in terms of studio work studio technique i mean and that and that's uh you know uh that that intro with all the weird talking is has little hints of that but there are a bunch of um there are actually i don't know if i've we might have glossed over a couple. There are some solos in here where he d- does some really interesting, uh, you know, recording techniques. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, he's a real, you know, playing solos backwards. I don't think there's anything backwards on this particular record. That was, that w- that was on, but that was on the previous one on the, on, uh, are you experienced? And, yeah. um, I yeah. Did, I had a mark, I think, Jason, why don't we play like the beginning of if six was nine and then um, yeah. maybe skip ahead to like three fifty five, which has kind of a cool like psychedelic kind of bridge. Okay. Uh, let me know when to jump. It's kind of interesting. I mean, this like it, it's kind of futuristic, but also it's almost it could be like a Muddy Waters song. Yeah, or absolutely, Wolf. so so um, blues roots. Absolutely, at this point, yeah, um, yeah. Jason, go ahead to three fifty five because uh, this has kind of a cool trippy kind of bridge. Yeah, that I, I don't. I actually don't know how he's. I, I don't know how he accomplished that high sound. It's almost like a flute. Yeah, it's just. I mean, and this is really like maybe more out there than a lot of stuff the Beatles get credit for. You know, oh, and, yeah. and he'd oh, already sure, been doing sure. it. You know, a two, a year prior with uh, yes, the first yes. album. Um, another thing I love about this album and his albums in general, because um, uh, I guess over uh, over time things kind of become standardized. But um, 
Right. Like the Beatles weren't really that into stereo recording. Like they, they kind of flavored the mono mixes of those records. But like, I love how like now, and I'm sure you mix records and things like there's probably certain like standards of how you mix within a stereo field. Right. But like on some of these early stereo albums, like things drift from like left to right. Oh yeah. And, like, well, he loves they, planning, planning, they, panning things around. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was, there were no rules, then. but you know, you put the drums over on the right. Yeah. The only the one that's like that is Piper at the Gates of Dawn, the first Pink Floyd album, is like mm-hmm. a really obviously mixed by people on like acid. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But because stuff just wanders, like it's not even hard pans; it's just kind of like wanders left to right, like mm-hmm. it's just strolling around the track. Um, but so yeah, it's just it, his combination of just this like you know almost like he's at one with his instrument, but yet you know he's also using the studio as an instrument. Um, one thing that is important is like, I mentioned the fuzz face. He was really an early adopter of guitar pedals, which yep. now yes, are like their yep. own huge, like mm-hmm. boutique guitar pedal industry or whatever. Yep. But you know, the, the fuzz face was a, a very important to his sound. And mm-hmm. so he was really on the cutting edge at, at the same time. And I don't know, like you kind of mentioned that, uh, with the rooted in the blues, this kind of like melding of, uh, very old traditions and, very futuristic stuff at the same time. And it, it just felt natural to him, you know? Well, you know, I, I think part of that, it, it's, it's this combination of, of the solid ground of the blues that he's just like completely 100%, you know, got both feet planted there. Right. And then, then this experimental edge of things, um, where, I mean, one of the, um, one of the uh, biographies that I read of him uh, said, uh, claimed that um, as a paratrooper, because he actually was in the army for a little while and trained to be a paratrooper, that he was fascinated by the sound of jumping out of the plane and what that sounded like. And, uh, and uh, wow. uh, you know, if it ain't true, it ought to be. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And hey, uh, so let's go so, with it. it. And he really, you know, sort of getting back to this, this kind of avant-garde thing that we were talking about earlier, he explored all the dimensions of his of his instrument, and in this case, I think he's the first player who really saw that the guitar is not an instrument; it's a controller, and the amp is the instrument. And uh, yeah, which is which is why I have a 1970 Marshall JMP one, which would be very similar to what he played through um, uh, in my studio right here. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very special sound. Uh, and you, tr- the only way it's very simple. And the only way you get distortion is by making it, turning it up, <laughs> which is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure he <laughs> For those you have apartments, you know what that means. Um, so, it, it, right. it, but this, this kind of, you know, you, it's, it's how the, how do you make the guitar interact with the amp to create, um, all those sounds, and I have no idea how he got that sound on the top of that. Uh, you know that weird stuff he's doing, but I bet yeah. it's got something to do with how he's working with the amp, uh, and maybe some recording techniques too. You know, like some tape stuff. Yeah, and I, I, you know, you mentioned um, Yvonne. You know, just like playing an Al Green song on the piano or whatever. Right, like, right, exactly. I think that's an interesting thing with both these guys. Is like a lot of people just you know like which I would count myself among them. Just sort of like you know, dive into just making like weird noises. Right. Because like, mm-hmm. I don't really know what I'm doing, but like, there's also the people that went all the way through learning all the standard stuff 
and mastering that because you know, like you're not going to be in Little Richard's band. I know he got fired for showboating, but like, right? If you were in Little Richard's band, like you were a fucking good player. Yeah, you nailed it, right? right? Like he's not going to tolerate that. You know what I mean? Like he didn't get hired without being mighty good. (laughs) You know, and then he took it beyond that. So it's like those guys, and the same with Yvonne. Like you know, I'm sure he could compose in a very more traditional classical style if you had wanted to. You know what I mean? And but then they take it farther, and and but I think having that background of mastery of like the the more right, normal quote unquote stuff, I don't know, or standard stuff is is kind of interesting. What what would what would you like to hear uh, that we haven't covered? Oh, you know what I think would be cool actually would be to um to play the end of Bold as Love because there's something that happens after this which is pretty crazy. I had it maybe at two forty five. Now, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I listened to this several times. Like, this is just... God, you mentioned Freebird, and this wow, I didn't yeah. think about uh-huh. them, his influence on Skinner, but this like yeah. totally is. Oh, it's totally there. Um, but uh, yeah, so here we were, do, we're doing an entire song. What this actually reminds me, I, oddly enough, of is Domi, because um, you're in this song that's really gotten you into this one space, right? And um, and uh, then at the end, he just completely throws a monkey wrench in things and goes to this other. He's, in, he's been in like a, he's been in like um, a, a flat for the whole time, and now boom, he's in C. Uh, and, and, and he's he's a he's, he's a major third higher, and a completely and and it's a flat minor really, so C is like really far away, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and um. It, it just, it, it's kind of like at the end of, um, you know, there's, uh, um, there's at the end of Domi, there's a, um, there's a spot where it just kind of breaks down completely. And then you hear this tonality. That's a half step out. It's, it's a, it's a, a half step, uh, flatter than, than where you've been for the whole piece. Wow. And, uh, it's, uh, so it's the sharp, uh, C rather than the. C as in lots of T, whatever you want to call it. Point is, um, he goes to this really different place. And then there's this, uh, and, and not not being satisfied with that, he's got something called opre do me, which is just an, another just completely deconstruction of what's happened before. So um, it's a very kind of a modern thing uh, in a way to, to, to just say, you know, all right, well, I thought you, you thought you were in a comfortable place up to this point, but I'm just, I'm just going to yank the rug out from, I'm going to yank the rug out from under your feet. And, uh, you know, here's where we're going now, you know, and just, you know, that solo at the end of it, just, he's just flying. I mean, he's just like, exactly. It's like suddenly you're, you're, you're taking off in the, in the proverbial, uh, proverbial magic carpet. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, I guess I get jealous of people like that just because, you know, you can put music together and like make cool melodies and put, but it's just 
that kind of pure playing zone, like that mm-hmm. somebody like Coltrane had or Hendrix had or yeah. you know other people had. Like that's something that I don't think you can. You can't study it. You can't take lessons about it. You know what I mean? It's just sort of like an inborn like gift that certain people have. You know, and it's 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 but it's amazing to listen to. You know, it really is. It really is. And uh, yeah, it's and and it's really all about exploring. I think. You know, I think that was that was what was interesting about uh, to me about the avant garde music uh, that you know I learned uh, and. Uh, and rock and roll, especially in that era, and I hate to say it, like sound like an old get off my lawn type, but um, <laughs> you know, they just don't do it that way anymore. You know, just well, I don't know what's happened. They just, they, they just these kids these days. Um, but, you <laughs> Wait, know. Did, did Bob Dylan rejoin us? <laughs> no, that's 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 my old that's my old get off my lawn, dude. Yeah. Like, no, because I guarantee uh, Dylan does not care. Yeah, Dylan does not care <laughs> what kids are doing. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything exactly. to him one way or the means, other. Yeah, it's not. It's just uh, no. Uh, you know, I just that was happened to be a time when music was um, at the forefront of the culture in in many different parts of the culture. Uh, everything from you know jazz to uh, classical to to a uh, course rock and roll because that was the big pop uh, mm-hmm. phenomenon. And, um, you, you know, like you've almost felt like you were doing something for mankind, you know, by, by, uh, by, uh, doing music, you know, that, it, that it was somehow important. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, artistic expression has always been important and always will be. Um, but it, it felt it, it had a significance culturally at that time that just doesn't happen seem to happen to have now and i'm sure it will again at some point but or maybe i'm just missing something so uh so i'd by the way anyone out there wants to send me suggestions or uh, of cool stuff to listen to please because i can't get enough of it absolutely um well but oh by the way yes if i may say that that um fleet foxes Oh yeah, we'll uh, get to that. that. Oh, that was righteous. Yeah, we'll get oh, to yeah. that. That's our our community pick. Okay. It was, it's we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, do yeah, you have yeah. time to stick around for a couple questions? How yeah. are you on time? No, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, but first, a huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, they got here by going to patreon.com slash minmax, and so can you. That's patreon.com slash m i n n m a x. Your support really does keep everything going here at MinMax, including crossfade, documentaries, exclusive interviews, and way more. Plus, you get cool perks like exclusive content, community trivia with killer prizes, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, and the MinMax Discord. And, of course, a chance to ask crossfade guests all your burning questions, like our very first from Jeremiah Parks, one of our supporters on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, says, second week in a row where the guest is a big influence of mine, and Matt has been killing it with the album choices, too. So... What hats off to both of you from Jeremiah Parks, but he has a question for Peter. He says your work with Michael Land mm-hmm. on the iMuse system is one of those big touchstone developments in gaming, and at this point, interactive music is almost expected in most games today. So, uh, what's been the most surprising change you've seen in interactive music um, compared to the old, you know, MIDI systems you started on? And are there any modern games that stand out to you specifically for their use of interactive music? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, uh. Well, there it's obviously it's reached a level of sophistication um, that's that's pretty exquisite in some cases. A lot of the stuff that that like 
Sony does um, in uh, in uh, titles like The Last of Us. Um, it's just it's it's super subtle. Like people just don't notice it, but it's really really effective. Um, uh, I think. Uh, well, I will say the, the first question was the biggest change that that you've noticed, mm-hmm. and and. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I think not to sound too grumbly, but, but what, what surprises me most is how things don't change, (laughs) how, how you have to explain, you know, here's how a loop works still to people or, or you have to, um, or, or, uh, you are, have to solve the same technical problems now over and over again that you solved 20 years ago. Um, especially if, if the, uh, if, if the developer is not using something like, uh, you know, WYs or, or FMOD, um, which are two just amazingly awesome systems. Um, uh, and, and there are other in-house systems that out there that are, that are quite, uh, quite good, but it's, it, what's funny to me is, is actually that we, a lot of times I find that we're kind of going through the same things that we always have, you know, well, is this worth it? Um, um, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, just getting a loop to work so that you don't notice it. Um, you know, really basic, simple stuff like that. Um, and, but that said, um, the other side of it is just the, the degree to which it has become just part of the fabric, you know, with, in some of these big cinematic games where it's done very artfully and, and, uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's so well done that you don't notice it. When, when iMuse first came out, by the way, no one noticed it. <laughs> <'Cause> it's <laughs> kind of like, oh yeah, wasn't well, that the way it's supposed to be, you know? Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm overstating that a little bit, but it really did take a while for people to really kind of catch on that we were doing something a little bit different. And, um, uh, in terms of what's going on now, uh, there's still, there, there really still is this, uh, kind of, uh, uh, desire to explore, uh, in, in some of, in some of the titles I've seen. And one that really sticks out is Peggle. If, if you're familiar hmm. with that, it's a, it's a little game from, um, EA, uh, from PopCap. Uh-huh. Um, that, uh, that, uh, was done by Guy Whitmore and he's a real, um, he comes from the same tradition of, of sort of, uh, uh, you know, avant-garde experimental music. And he's done all these things with, um, uh, sort of the details of, of interactive music in that game that are, um, really, really cool. Sick. Our second community question comes from Tyler Sticka. Another question for Peter says that I find hearing your compositions immediately brings me back to where they occurred in game, especially for Psychonauts and Sly 2, because this Mm -hmm. is a compliment to the longevity of your work. But um, the question is, are there any secrets you have to writing music that evokes not just an emotion, but a sense of place in that way? Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that is a good question. Um, I I do, there is an awareness that one has, I think, of what the cliches are. Mm -hmm. Um in terms of, you know, uh, sort of cultural, cultural cliches or, or cliches of mood and key, uh, the traditional thing that, that a movie composer would do in that situation. And I'm not saying you necessarily employ those cliches, but you're aware of them because they're there. 
And um, so you you may be playing off of them, referring them to some in, in, in some way, or you may be just throwing them out, throwing them out the window. So, um, so you're, you're thinking of like specific cues or tones or instrumentations yeah, that like, like denote a place. Exactly. Exactly. Where it's like, well, you, you use this, you use this kind of scale because you want to suggest that you're in, in, in uh, you know, Arabia or something like that. Right. And, uh, and there are just, you know, absolutely threadbare, um, uh, cliches for that situation, but they are part of kind of the popular uh, mm-hmm. cons- the, the popular sense of, of what quote Arabia unquote is. And sure. so, and so you're, you're, you have that, you have that sound, you have those sounds in mind, but then hopefully you're, what you're also trying to do is maybe, um, learn a little bit about the real music from the place and, um, and find a way that you can ac- access that, um, through this sort of, essentially pop language that we use as, 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 as visual composers. We're sort of a combination of pop writers and mm-hmm. classical writers, I think a lot in, in a lot of place, a lot of cases. Yeah. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just uh, do some research and, and, uh, and listen to the sound and just close your eyes and you go, well, what does that make me, what does that remind me of? Yeah. Um, it reminds me of our conversation with Darren Corb from the last episode mm-hmm. where of course, he just scored Hades, uh, but he was talking about having gone back to, in his original research, going back to like ancient Greek music. Yeah. Of course, there's no real version of that recorded, just best guesses at what it probably sounded like. But then he found that it totally did not fit what the mood was. Right. So, in you know, in an inversion right. of that point where he learned exactly what it was supposed to be in the time, roughly, and found that it just was not going to work. So he went for more modern. He went for bazookis yeah. and mandolins and, you know, exactly. Mediterranean sounds. So it's it's a fun, like... Different approaches to that are always, I think, equally valid. Absolutely. But, uh, wait, really interesting. And Definitely, he's got his own voice, right? Yes, he does. And 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 um, you know, it, it, we are we are entertaining, right? So we want to communicate to people, and so part mm-hmm. of it is taking into account what their expectations are, and and working with, within that between all those things, and then bringing out something that that feels honest you know, that feels like the mm-hmm. right thing to do. And I mean, you know, the, uh, uh, music for hearthstone comes to mind, right. That's, that's not medieval music. But, um, but, um, but it's, uh, but it's, for me, it's the right music, you know, it's, uh, it's right. kind of hard to kind of hard to explain. So there's a lot of subtle stuff going on in those situations. And so you just kind of, you just listen a lot. It's for sure. For sure. Um, you know it when you hear it kind yes. of thing, not to evoke the wrong people with right. that phrase, but yeah. you know it when you hear it. Um, yes. Our next question comes from Ben Hansen himself of MinMax. That's MinMax with two mm-hmm. N's. Uh, he says, and I guess this is a question for both of you since you're both musicians, but when was the last time you went back and listened to your own music or heard it somewhere and thought, oh, this is quite good? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's good <laughs> attitude. There I'm, you go. Uh, d- uh, dude, I'm so full of myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know the, the thing is that that um most of the time i'm pretty pleased with what i've done because that was the the, the method i used to write it was was um i'm not till i'm not done till i'm happy so hmm. you know so i'll listen to it like no nah, it's not making me happy yet so where what where is it going wrong and uh so it is it's it's uh 
Um, and it's kind of nice now that I'm a, a little bit older because uh, my craft has gotten better because I've, I'm, I'm, you know, just developed things over the years. But um, I also forget what I've done. So when I go back and listen to it, it's like, oh, wow, hey, I did a pretty good job there. That's awesome. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and, and of course, there's the other side of that coin where it's like, oh, man, I wish we'd had a live dumb back for that. That's, oh, geez, you know. Um, but um, I'm just to be honest, I'm just happy with what I'm done when I've done it. So um, I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, other than maybe mixed details, it's not, I'm usually pretty happy when I listen to it later on too. Yeah. Wow. Incredibly positive way to look at your music. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. I, uh, I mean, my career is not so much a series of iconic game soundtracks as a series <laughs> of very obscure and unsuccessful indie rock bands. But um, <laughs> did you what, sing? No, I just bass bass player. Okay. Um, so I guess the thing with bands is that <clears throat> it takes me a while because there's always all these like you know, like petty kind of arguments. Oh yeah, that really truly don't matter in the long run. And so after a few years go by, it's like I kind of forget how to play all the parts because like the band broke up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it's like I listen to it. And it's like I couldn't play this. I don't know how we came up with this, and I forgot all like the little things about how mm -hmm. somebody wanted a synthesizer in this thing and I was pissed off about it or like the vocals were too high or, you know, right. all this stuff. And it's kind of like just listening to like somebody else's record almost. So then I'm like, okay, that, that sounds pretty good, you know, but it has, I sort of have to be d divorced from like the situation because right away you're just always like, you hear all these right. little dumb studio debates that, you know, ultimately, like I said, don't matter. Well, I, I've absolutely been there and, uh, I did front a rock band in the nineties and, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, when what's, I, there's something about singing for that makes that harder. I, I don't think, I think some of that stuff, I really like the songs, but, um, and I like, I just like what we did with it. But at the same time, I don't necessarily, you know, want to hear it now. Um, oh, because it's some, your own voice. It's your own voice. And, yeah. and, and it's like, I, I don't, you know, I would sing it differently now that I, I definitely, it, you know, performing is definitely a different thing from composing and, and, uh, uh, um, it's the, the focus is just a little different and, you know, emotionally when you're doing it. So, so yeah, it's real hard. I, I, I totally sympathize. With that. That's real hard to have perspective on, on, on like, uh, you know, on your singing, uh, or, or on your songs or, and the band you're right. The band experience being a collaborative one, there's all this, there's all this, uh, different kinds of energy that, that go on there. And, and, uh, that some of that can be, Oh, you know, ah, the good old days of the halcyon days of youth as, uh, WC fields <laughs> would put it. Um, but, uh, and it's, you know, it's great. And then other times you're just like, Oh God, you know, give me a break. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's. I, I think it's. I you know maybe that's why I've decided to become a composer because uh, <laughs> it's all you. Just, you. It's all you. Tell all the other people what to do, and 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 it's your job that to make sure they get it right. And when it when if they do, you're you're fine. Yeah. And where I'm just like yeah. I told Eric we should have made that guitar part a little bit higher in the mix. Oh, then, like, oh he wouldn't <laughs> listen to me. You that's, know what I mean? And that's a tough. <laughs> that kind of thing is 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 a real. That's a real, that's a tough one too. Cause that's probably, yeah. 
which, which is louder, the guitar, the snare drum, that is a, and that's a, or the kick drum, that's a real, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Knock down, oh, drag out. All right. I can't go back um, there. And there's no truth. There's no truth there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, being respectful of everybody's time, we've got one. Uh, let's yes. go for two final questions. Mm-hmm. One, one uh, fun one, and then one kind of layup. Hopefully, um, we've got one from Blacklink Firelink who mm-hmm. asks if you could play as a guest musician with any band or artist, past or present, for one live concert, which one would you choose and why? Um, Nick Cave. Ooh, Ooh. that's a very because good. Because I play that's... electric violin. I actually shared. shared I, I played um, in a show for the band that was opening for him in San Francisco uh, a couple, you know, well now a long time ago. Yikes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and uh, it was a really cool, a country duo called um, um, freak water. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I played some banjo with that. And, and my, my buddy uh, who's also a student of Yvonne's uh, that was their uh, slide guitar player. He's a uh, John Spiegel out of uh, Chicago. And we played at the Warfield in San Francisco, and we opened for Nick Cave, and he had this electric violinist who was really cool. Oh yeah, uh, and, Warren Warren Ellis. Yeah, and I was like, man, I would, I'd love a gig like that because I, I also play electric violin, and uh, it's kind of like my, they're really maybe in some ways only really original thing I do instrumentally is is uh, I play electric violin through like a half stack with a wah pedal and stuff and. Um- um, just to interject. Uh, yeah, you, you asked so for music. Cool. Do, you, do you know Warren's other band, Dirty Three? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. just going to suggest Ocean right. Songs. I almost right. literally almost picked that. Yeah, I was talking about Ocean Songs. So, yeah, I mean, I just love this, that sort of dark, brooding vibe, and the uh, uh, and just uh, anyway, just I thought just thought they were a cool band. So yeah, yeah. Love, I saw them about five years ago in Milwaukee, and it's one of the I think top ten shows I ever saw. Just absolutely. Right showman and you know he's yes. like this six six praying mantis in a suit <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah i know he's, <laughs> yeah he's definitely <laughs> i mean he just doesn't seem like a regular human being you know what i yeah. mean um yeah. but uh for me i think i would just go back because i think when i was a kid you know in elementary and stuff i was probably just listening to like music um that was just around in like pop music in like the 80s and stuff uh but then i heard led zeppelin through like a friend's like mm-hmm probably older brother or something like that right. in high school. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I so know that one, yeah. it was just like Zeppelin just really captured my imagination. I think it was the first band that really seemed like it was their, their own kind of like mm-hmm. world or something. Or they, they seem kind of spooky in some way that mm-hmm. other, like the other bands, you know, like of that time, I don't know. They just seem very kind of occult and weird to me. And I guess I would just like to feel like that kind of super pomp and circumstance of like Zeppelin in their, imperial phase you know just right in mm-hmm. front of like forty thousand people and stuff just to and be in front of like john bonham and stuff would just be i don't know i think that'd be amazing <laughs> yeah. you know because that's more of like yep. a childhood childhood well, I, kind I, of I, mind's I, eye I, thing i can understand that I and mean, it doesn't get um it doesn't get much more rocking yeah all right uh Let's go for the final question here from Podbod, who says, love the show. Recently went on a road trip, and my friend and I often listen to Crossfade in the car. Well, thank you so much, Podbod. We're happy to be there. Uh, let's see. The question is a pretty classic one. If you could pick just one album to take with you on a dirt, excuse me, deserted island, what album would you take? Bruce Coburn, Circles in the Stream. 
Okay, I'm adding that to my listening list right now. Why? Why Bruce Coburn? Um, uh, well, he's a guitar, uh, kind of a guitar and and spiritual influence on me. Um, and uh, I met him twice, and uh, he was just you know everybody's got their pop hero when they're a kid. He was mine. And I love his sort of, uh, his kind of folk. This, it, it's a circles in the stream. I think is like 72 or 74. It's a pretty old record. Um, he went through sort of a, a spiritual phase and kind of a political phase after that. And, uh, I was down with both of those. Um, and, uh, his, uh, but his, uh, um, guitar playing is quite unique. Hmm. Um, and you will hear it in a lot of the work that I do. Cause I just love the way he works a guitar with fingers. He's a, he's a real, you know, he's a finger player, uh, acoustic hmm. player. And, um, uh, also he's Canadian, which is, you know, a bonus right there. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's so many of the great, uh, Bruce Coburn, uh, uh, uh Joni Mitchell and, and, uh, Okay. And uh, David, not David Crosby, um, uh, Neil Young. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just, I was always a real fan of his. I had, I'm not familiar. I, I've heard the name, but yeah, I'll, we'll have know, to check the, that out. The, the one you might know, it's because it's it's been a while. The one you might know would be a song called uh, Wondering Where the Lions Are, which was a brief pop hit in about 1980. Hmm, I haven't heard that. Yeah. I'm gonna check it out. Is is his name also spelled like C O C K Cockburn? Like Cockburn? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but it's Coburn. Yeah. Is how it's he Coburn. It. Yeah. It's like it's okay. like Welsh or some you know. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. But gotcha. he's you know he's Canadian, but but he says like being and like as I have been there and you know <laughs> the way, you know the way those guys <laughs> yeah, talk. Yeah, it's yeah, different. Yeah. It's different. Yeah, 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 it's cool. It's it's fine. Uh, um, for me, this right. is a oh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, yeah. I would probably say we actually did it on this show early on, but yeah. I probably would have to go with Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Um, oh, that's a great one. Like, too. just I, I don't know when I heard that. It was probably sometime in my early twenties in college or something, and I it just uh, I think so. Not anything like that album. It almost feels like, and, it, and even I love a lot of his work, but even within his catalog, it has sort of a yeah. unique, almost kind of mystical kind of feel yeah. or that it was sort of channeled from something um and it just that that's always maintains its sort of sense of mystery like to how it came to be um so i'd probably go with that but you know that's it would be a bummer to only have one record but I guess. you know it would that's that that's <laughs> you know it's kind of it's kind of an evil setup for sure because it's like oh so i guess i don't get to take my stravinsky you know shoot um um but uh yeah um I think that's pretty much Astro Weeks. Is that that seems like early seventies? If I don't, if I don't, uh, no, I believe no, it's, it's, not, oh, it's sixty-eight later. or sixty-nine. Oh, even earlier. Oh, okay. you know, he's like he was. Oh, I, I know. And was, was like twenty-three or something when yeah, he did that yeah, record. Yeah, like he's incredible. All right, on the way out, we as uh, both of you alluded to earlier, we play a song that the community has suggested. This one is coming from Tom Blackburn, who suggested The Shrine slash An Argument by Fleet Foxes. Um, ah, yes. Yeah. Uh, Tom's explainer is uh, that it's got, uh, it, it has a very impressive scope. It's got key changes, different acts, and the use of triplets on the guitar to lend that Western vibe to it. He thought that maybe it was something that a composer could appreciate in popular music. So it sounds like you were a big fan. Yeah, I was. Um, I really, the the singing and the harmonies in the beginning were just incredible. And the way it sort of, you know what it reminded me of actually was, was, um, uh, Jethro Tull. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. And, there we uh, go. 
you know, because oh, it, it really, I think if this, I think if this were done, if think if this piece were done today, it would not be one piece. It would be several cuts on a theme album, you know, like a, uh, like a, um, you know, a, a dark side of the moon or a, or a Sergeant Pepper or a, um, or um, now I can't think of the English field. There's a, a, a Jethro Tull, uh, Aqualung. There you go. Um, but uh, if you do separate tracks these days, people put them in whatever, right? they just put them in whatever order they want. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a, it's a disgrace. Um, so oh, so you, they, they made them as one track. So if you, you want to make a piece that has a larger shape, you, you need to do it as one track. And I, this is, I'm just, I'm just guessing here. Right. Uh, because the, there's such different movements. Um, and yet they all relate in a nice way. Um, and, uh, I think that's a really interesting solution to that prop to the shuffle track problem. You know, it's like, well, if you're going to make a lar- larger statement, I guess you just do one big track. I guess that's the way you you got to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate though, that it had like, you know, it, it started as one thing and kind of evolved a couple of oh, times. Yes. Really yeah. Definitely. And, and to some, you know, some really, uh, some, uh, um, really different places, but you didn't, but none of which were you going. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Um, Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. This is like really enjoyed our conversation and um, really enjoyed kind of just discovering Yvonne's music and kind of getting into that whole kind of just a very interesting uh, sphere of music. And so we were happy to be able to learn a little bit about that. Well, thanks, Matt. I enjoyed it too. I, I really, uh, I really had fun and uh, I thought it was a great conversation and just thanks for having me on the show. Obviously, we talked a little bit about Psychonauts 2. That game is coming out on the 25th of August, so people will be able to experience that and obviously the uh, the score within the game. Uh, I believe pre-orders for the uh, original soundtrack album are also being uh, put live on the internet on the 25th, so you can get your order in and, and be able to enjoy that music uh, outside of the game as well. Um, so, Peter, uh, congrats on uh, the, the new project, and it's... You, it's kind of to come into fruition here. I'm sure it's been a lot of work and oh, a lot of fun. So, yes, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it, you know five years is it, it was uh, it was quite the labor of love, and and we're really happy with it. So I really do appreciate that. Yeah, well, we we all look forward to playing it and and listening to it. So thanks so much. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. We'd like to uh, thank everyone for listening, all your support of the show, leaving us. Uh, a lot of nice reviews on Apple and, and various other platforms. We appreciate that. If you want to support MinMax and the uh, content that we're creating, you can go to patreon.com slash MinMax. And uh, until then, I hope you all have a, a safe and happy two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks.
Yeah.